Once again, welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today, whether that be in person or online for those of you on Facebook, and uh, just really glad to be back together worshiping the Lord. And uh, if you're a visitor with us today, we're especially glad that you're here. If we can help you or serve you in any way, please let us know. We'd love to do that. If you need anything online, let us know that in the comments as well, and we'll see what we can do to help out. So right now, we want to continue to worship the Lord through the study of his word. So grab your Bibles with me. We're going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you've been with us at all this fall, you know we've been working our way through uh, the book of Nehemiah, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking at what does it mean, how do we take new ground for God's glory in our lives, in our church, in our community, in the kingdom, and uh, just really seeing some great things from the Lord in this. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there's kind of this shift in the book of Nehemiah. So the first six chapters or so are primarily focused on Nehemiah coming and rebuilding the walls of God's city. The chapter 7 and on is him turning his attention not to the walls, but to the people of God now. And they're starting to move towards not just physical repair, but spiritual repair, right? And he's calling the people back in to the Lord uh, in their spiritual practices. And so we're going to see here in chapter 9, and really for the next several chapters, like 9, 10, 11, 12, it's kind of one big long scene of Nehemiah calling the people back to worship, to worship God properly. And so we're going to kind of do like this little kind of three-part mini-series in the next three weeks here of what does it mean to take new ground through worship, lifestyle of worship with the Lord, And that starts today exactly where it starts for the people in Nehemiah's uh, care, which is humility. Humility is the starting place. And so I want to talk about that today as we look at Nehemiah chapter 9. So I was thinking about this. Do you remember, some of you aren't there yet, but some of you have been past this. Do you remember the, the age at which you finally realized that your parents might actually know some things? That they might actually have a little bit more wisdom or knowledge than maybe you had at that point in your life. Like, I feel like for a lot of people, that's somewhere around like 22, 23-ish. Some of you still aren't there yet, but that's okay. Like, it's coming, right? But there comes this point in time where you realize, I remember for me, I don't just remember the age. I remember the moment, right? So I was in college, and I had made this really unwise purchase as a college student. And I all of a sudden had no idea how I was going to be able to pay my bills and take care of this thing. And so I was kind of freaking out, and my dad sat me down, and he started me working me through, like, all right, here's how you do a budget, and here's how you make a plan, and, and he helped me get things back on track and get moving in the right direction. And I remember in that moment thinking, wow, he might actually know more than I give him credit for. Like, like he might actually have some, some knowledge here that I don't have yet. And, and he might have, I, I came to this understanding that God, that God, that dad had reached a level of status in, in this life that I had not yet reached. And it was very humbling, in a good way, um, to come to that understanding. And it completely changed the relationship that I had with my dad through this humbling experience to come and say, oh, okay, I need to listen, I need to learn, we need to, we need to do more of this. And that same thing happens, or hopefully happens, with us and God, Right? This is where worship, true worship of God starts, is in this realization. There's a, a, a theologian British pastor um, from years ago named John Flavel. I love the way he said this. He said, they that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. So well said, right? And that's what we're going to see here in Nehemiah chapter 9, that once we get a real picture of who God is Versus who we are, humility just flows into our hearts like a river. And out of that humility comes worship. Right? So with that in mind, what I want you to see here in the people of Nehemiah, with Nehemiah here in chapter 9 is that worship starts when I see the faithfulness of God and the wickedness of me. Worship starts when I see the faithfulness of God and the wickedness of me. And it brings me to this place of humility. So with that in mind, take a look at chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll get into the scripture this morning. It says, Now, 
On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canaanai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. First thing I want you to see here about humility is that spiritual humility requires confession of sin. It has to start with confession of sin. So just to get a little bit of context here in verse 1, we see it says that now on the 24th day of this month, what month are we talking about? Well, this actually is pointing us back to chapter 8, that Chris did such a fantastic job teaching us last week. Amen? Amen? So he told us that they were in this, they were, came together, they were hearing the word of God, and they found out that they were in this month that was supposed to have the Feast of Booths, right? This festival of booths that they had not been doing. And so they finally said, oh, we need to do this, we need to obey God's word. And so they go into this celebration of this festival. That would have lasted until the 22nd of the month. And so 24th is two days after the celebration that they just finished up in chapter 8. All right, so this is right on the heels of that. But now we're done with that, and it's time for the next thing. And what we see here is that the celebration is over, but they still have an issue that has not yet been settled. Remember back in chapter 8, verse 9? Their first response to hearing God's word was not celebration. It was weeping and mourning. And then Nehemiah was like, no, no, pause that. we got to celebrate first. But now the celebration is over, and we still have to deal with the sin issue that they had not yet been dealt with. And so they come back to that, and it says that they went into fasting, and they put on sackcloth, and they put earth on their heads. And that all seems a little strange to us, but this was very customary of the day, and these were all physical signs of humility. These were signs of contrition over their sin. They were, they were showing that they were mourning the sin in their lives. They were broken over it. And this, my friends, is so key. This is the heart of true biblical confession. It's a brokenness. It's a mourning over my sin. Confession in the, in, in the biblical sense is not just saying that it happened. Confession is agreeing with God that not only it happened, but it's wrong and it's against him. And so therefore, that should break my heart. And it should draw me into this mourning, this, 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 this uh, contrition, this despising of the sin in my heart and my life. So it says they started doing this and they separated themselves from the people of the land and what that separation is, it's showing us a couple different things. Number one, it's showing us that they were taking serious this issue of sin in their lives. They were taking serious action. They were taking immediate action to distance themselves from those who were maybe feeding that in them. And this would have had some great social consequences for them, right? These were people they were doing life with. They would have had financial consequences. They were probably doing business with these people and trading. Um, we find out uh, throughout Nehemiah that some of them had intermarried with these people, so it had some relational consequences. So this was not an easy thing for them to do to separate themselves. But they do it because it was necessary in order for them to truly confess their sin before God. Because here's the reality. Confession is a result of our faith in God and in his word. That's what drives confession. It's that I believe who he is and what he says. And if these people don't worship him, if they're not Israelites, if they're not God's people, they can't do that. They can't confess their sins because they don't understand their sins. They don't believe that. They don't see it. So there had to be this separation that happened. And by separating them, they're saying to God, listen, all right, we're ready to deal with sin. No more hiding, no more covering, no more ignoring, no more continuing to go along with the rest of the world and just do what we've always done. They're owning their sin before the Lord with humility and brokenness. It goes on and it says they confessed their sins. So first thing they have to do is they have to get personal with it. Right? Personal confession comes first. 
It's me dealing with my heart with God. I have to deal with my stuff and my sin before I can go anywhere with God's people. So first it says that they confess their sins, but then it goes on and it says, and the iniquities of their fathers. So there's a certain point that once I am on the confession train, right? Once <laughs> I've got my heart moving <coughs> excuse me, in that direction, then I can align myself with the rest of God's people and, and we can confess corporately in some ways, right? And this is a really big question here in Scripture about corporate confession and corporate repentance. Like, is that still valid today? Is that still something we should be doing today? Is that, like, where does that fall? And to be honest with you, that's a huge biblical study across many scriptures in God's word that I do not have time to do this morning. But I can summarize maybe just this point right here in this scripture with this idea. They were not accountable for their father's sins, but they were a product of them. And so this confession for the iniquities of their father, it doesn't mean because God was holding them guilty because of their father's sins. But what they're doing is here, they're coming, they're confessing and they're mourning over their sin and the soil in which that grew out of, which was that of their growing up with their ancestors and this family line that has been walking in these sins as well. So what we see when we put all that together is that this is a direct result of what just happened in chapter 8, right? That they looked deeply into God's word and they clearly saw their own sin. And so they returned back to to the word of God again. It says they went and they read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Like three to four hours, right? Some of us, we start getting close to an hour and a half, and we're like tapping out, right? Like, but these people are so hungry for God's word. They are so eager to get back into right relationship with God that they're coming and they're listening for three or four hours and then for another quarter of the day, another three or four hours, they make confession and they worship the Lord. This is what happens when we look into the depths of God's word is that it leads us to confession and to worship. It says the Levites were on the steps, Joshua and his crew, and they cry out. And again, this is kind of hearkening back to chapter 8. Chris talked about this last time. The the Levites, their job was to to lead the people into the Scripture and basically to help explain it, very similar to what we do on Sunday mornings, like teach and explain and help people understand what God's Word means and how it applies to them and what they should do with it. So the Levites are doing that here again with them, and then they're going to lead them into this kind of like corporate prayer all right, to, to respond to God's word. And what stuck out to me when I was studying this week, I was just like, you know, for, for them to come and to stand and listen to God's word and then, and then do this confession worship thing for three to four or more hours, it shows these people, they, not only did they have humble hearts, but they had teachable hearts, right? Like they're coming, they're listening, they're, they're taking in what the Levites are saying and they're responding to God's word, they're responding to God's leaders, they're allowing themselves to be changed by this experience. And so as I look at chapter 9, the first part, at every turn we see the people of God humbling themselves before God and before his word. So we're all um, familiar with this, right? You guys all know what this is? Um, You probably have one of these in your house, in your car. Some of you have one in your purse. Uh, We're used to these. They they are helpful devices for us. Mirrors are something that we use on a regular basis. And the interesting thing about mirrors is exactly what they do and what they don't do. So, so what is that doing right there for you, Tom? It just shows you you, right? shows you an exact copy of who you are. It doesn't, like, change anything. It doesn't take the gray away. It doesn't, like, right? It doesn't take, it doesn't correct the eyesight. Like, it doesn't, right? It just shows you exactly what you are. That's what a mirror does. It shows us a picture of ourselves a clear, exact representation. It's not, it's not a, a window, right, that lets us look out and see other people so we can compare ourselves to them. It's not a painting where we can look at what we hope might be or what we want it to be or what, what our best guess is. A mirror shows us exactly who we are. 
God's word is a mirror. It's a mirror for the soul. And when we look deeply into God's word, it shows us exactly who we are. It doesn't show us what we want to be. It doesn't show us what other people are so we can compare ourselves to them. It shows us the reality of our heart, the reality of our sin. James 1, 23 and 24 says it this way. It says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. To look into the word of God and not be changed by it, to not be convicted by it, is to walk away and forget everything you've seen and heard. And ignore it as if it never happened. The Bible is a mirror showing us our sin and compelling us to humbly confess before the Lord. That's what the people are doing here. God's word shows me my wickedness and humbles me to confession. So the first step towards worship is this spiritual humility that comes from confession of sin. But there's more. Look at verse 5. The Levites go on. It says, Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. We'll pause there. Second point is this. Spiritual humility requires proclamation of God. Spiritual humility requires proclamation of God. So the Levites here, they, they're taking this role now, and they're leading out, and they're saying, hey, everybody, stand up. Stand up, and let's bless the Lord. Exalt his name. He is worthy of your worship. And they're going to lead them into this long prayer that follows that is basically just a retelling of the story of God's faithfulness and Israel's failures. And we're going to see this kind of like dual picture, this juxtaposition of God's faithfulness and Israel's failures. But as I read through this, I couldn't help but notice that it's not actually just a picture of Israel and God. It's actually a picture of us and God. All these same things we need to be reminded of. All these same things we have experienced and walk in. And so I want to look at it in that sense. I want us to look through this prayer and just look at the character of God in light of who we are. It starts off and says, you are the Lord, you alone. No one is like our God. We sing a song like that around here, don't we? Like, no one is like our God. No one can touch him. His character is completely unique to him and to no one else. And then they go on. Look at verse 6 again. It says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you're present, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. First thing, God made all creation. This is stressing his power. That our God has ultimate power over all the world, over all creation, over all of our lives. He is in control. Does anybody need to hear that this week? <laughs> our God has the power over all things, and he is in control. Goes on in verse 7 You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Second thing, God cho chose a people to love and save. He chose Abraham, he chose his family, he chose the nation of Israel to be 
his people. But he didn't stop there. Thankfully, through his son, Jesus Christ, he extended that chosen family to all who would believe. And so you and I, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he chose you. And he loves you today. And you're part of the family. Verse 8. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. God keeps his promises. Every single one. He kept every promise to the Israelites. He kept every promise to the disciples. He kept every promise in his word. And he still keeps every promise today for you and me. Verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his, of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. And by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. God sees affliction. He says, you saw the affliction of our fathers. That's so important. God sees us. God sees you. He sees everything you walk through. He sees everything that's coming against you. Our God is not one who put creation into motion and then walked away. Our God is not absent. He sees you. And he sees your struggles and he sees your affliction and he wants to help. Look at verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Not only does God see, God comes down. God came down to his people. First he came down on the mount there with Moses and he gave them the law and he gave them a leader and he gave them direction and he was with them in the tabernacle and he was with them in the temple and his presence was with his people. But then it got even better. Because eventually God came down in human form and he walked among us. And then he gave his life for us and he went back up into heaven and then he came down again to live inside of us if our faith is in him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our God is present. He's not far off. He comes down to us. Verse 15. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock of their thirst for their thirst and you told them to go in and possess the land that you have sworn to give them next god gives we've talked about this before our god is a giver and all throughout this prayer we see it over and over and over again how much he's giving to his people here he's giving them their needs bread and water even their most basic necessities god gives those things He's also giving them good gifts as he gives them this promised land to go in and possess. Right? And God still does that today. Everything that you have, God gives. The needs, the wants, the, the surpluses, the, all of it comes from him. God gives. Verse 16 but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. 
but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the day in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. God is ready to forgive. Oh man, how awesome is it that we have a God standing by at every moment ready to forgive. All of our sins all of our failures, every time they turned away, which was many, if you've read the Old Testament. It was a lot. Some of them in such grievous ways that we we can't even hardly swallow it. And God was still ready to forgive. Full of mercy, full of grace. And he's ready to forgive you. If you'll turn to him, He is ready to forgive. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter where you've come from, he's ready to forgive. Verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked Nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. My jeans go out in like six months. I got holes coming, man. Like 40 years. Clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. God sustains his people. He never fails. Ever. There was a song that I found last spring in the midst of all the quarantine shutdown craziness that simply says that over and over in the course, you never fail. You never fail. Man, so good. God's arm never comes up short. He sustains us. Every step. Verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, and they, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God subdues enemies. He completely cleared the land for them. They were the smallest tribe. There's no way they would have won on their own. But God fought for them. And God fights for us today. Whatever comes against you, whatever you're facing, God will fight for you. You don't have to do it yourself. You don't have to be strong enough on your own. God subdues enemies. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times 
You delivered them according to your mercies. God delivers his people. They fully deserved the judgment and the wrath that they received. They turned against God. They turned against the prophets. They were in sin. They fully deserved what they got. And yet, when they cried out, God delivered them again and again and again. Even if you're suffering under the consequences and the judgment and the shame and the pain and the wrath of your own sin, God can deliver you. God delivers his people. And then verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Lastly, God warns his people. And God's warning is twofold. Partly his warning is because he's just. And because of his holiness and because of his character, he must punish sin. But paired with his justice is his grace. And so he warns us before we sin so that we might turn away from our sin and not have to experience his wrath and his judgment. It's an act of justice, but it's also an act of grace. And so just look through that list, think through that list, and compare the character of God, the character of our Lord, with the character of his people. Let me go back and pick up some of the phrases that described Israel in this prayer. They acted presumptuously, he said. They presumed upon the Lord's goodness. They presumed upon his kindness, and they just kept doing whatever they wanted to do. It says that they stiffened their neck. It says like three or four times, they stiffened their neck. And it's such a great visual, but I don't know that we always get it. So I got a picture here for you. Let's throw that up there. So like if you were in an agrarian society like they were, you were constantly having to put yoke on animals and then lead them somewhere, right? And so the stiffening of the neck is like this, this donkey where you would put something over their head and you would try to lead them and they would pull with everything they have and they would stiffen their neck to not go where you wanted them to go. And we don't have any donkeys around here anymore. You probably haven't had this experience, most of us. Maybe you've had this experience. Show the second one. You might have that one, right? Like you're trying to take them to the vet or the groomer and they're just like, not going, right? Like that's stiffening of the neck. This is the picture that God is using to describe the hearts of his people. That when he's trying to lead us lovingly and graciously in the way of life everlasting, we are stiffening our neck and resisting and pulling away from him with everything that we have. It says they were disobedient, that they rebelled, that they did evil again and again. Does that sound familiar to anyone? That's me. Is that you? If that's you, man, just come on, put it up there, right? This is us. People have not changed. From the day Adam and Eve took the fruit, man, it has not changed one bit. We are the same wicked, sinful, disobedient, rebellious people that we have always been. Stiffening our neck against the Lord. On our best days, we don't even come close to being worthy of God's grace and mercy. And yet, 
verse 31 ends with just that. For you are gracious and merciful, God. And in that statement, in this prayer, lies the greatest truth of this whole thing, is that our wickedness never changes his faithfulness. He never turns away. He never gives up. He never stops pursuing us. You know, there's, um, many of us I know are on Facebook, and so Facebook has this, um, this feature called memories. Have you seen this, right? Like where they'll like, throw a post up from like a year ago or two years ago or five years ago or whatever, like you put a picture or you did something. And so our girls love to see mom's memories feature on Facebook. They're always asking, like, hey, show us, what, what memory did you have today? What memory did you have? Because it's usually pictures of them. That's really why. Like, it's when they were, you know, like a baby and doing something cute or they had something, you know, big going on that day. And so, and so they always want to look back and remember that part of their life, remember what it was like, right? That's what the Israelites are doing right here. That's what the Levites are doing here in this prayer. They're going back and they're remembering not who they were as much, but who God was, They're remembering his goodness. They're remembering his grace. They're remembering his character. They're remembering how great and awesome their God is by reflecting back on what he has done. You know, Courtney and I actually had this experience recently. Um, We we found ourselves, you know, just kind of in a in a rough place in our lives. We had stuff going on in our family and stuff in ministry and just stuff. It's just a lot, just a lot going on. I know many of us have felt that this year, right? Just a lot going on. And so we found ourselves kind of down, discouraged, just defeated even. And she, she turned to me one day and she said, let's just start listing all the great things that God has done and is still doing in our lives and our ministry. Let's just thank him for who he is and for the work that he's done. Thank God for our wives. Right, men? Like, amen? Can I? So we did that. And we started just to narrate this long, long, long list of God's provision, of God's blessing, of God's favor on our lives, on our family, on our marriage, on our ministry, on all these things. And in that list, in that remembering we were reminded of his greatness and his grace and it compelled us out of defeat and out of despair and back into worship. When we get our eyes fixed on the greatness of God, when we proclaim his majesty, it ushers our heart into worship. Humbly seeing and proclaiming the greatness of God. That's what they're doing here. And so God's faithfulness, in spite of my wickedness, humbles me to worship him. When we look back, when we remember, when we see it afresh, God's faithfulness in our life, in spite of our failings, in spite of our sin, in spite of our wickedness, compels us back. It humbles us to the place of worship once again. So first we have to confess sin. Then we have to proclaim God and who he is. And there's a third piece to spiritual humility. Look at verse 32. It says, Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you, that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in their large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. 
and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. We're going to stop there. Verse 38 actually is better with chapter 10, so we'll hit that next week. Third point here, spiritual humility requires petition for grace. Requires petition for grace. He starts off in 32 and he says, God, the great, the mighty, the awesome. He's going back into God's character again. But then he says, let not our hardship seem little to you. He doesn't exactly come right out and say it, but he's basically saying, Lord, see us, help us, give us grace. We need you. He goes on saying 36, we are slaves. We're slaves in this land, and we are slaves to our flesh. We are slaves to the king because we are slaves to our sin that has led us here. And again, this is all of us. Anytime we choose to step out, anytime we choose to walk in sin, we are slaves to sin. Despite what your mind wants to tell you and your heart wants to tell you, we never control sin. But it often controls us. If you think you can have it in your life and have it over in the corner and just control it and, have, and keep it under wraps, never works that way. It always gets the upper hand. It's like having a venomous snake in your house, and you're like, oh, no, it's good. I'll just keep it in the closet. It'll be safe. Until it's not. And it bites you, and it bites your kids, and it, it's not safe. You don't control it. It controls you if it's there. It says we are slaves, and they get to the last line. It says we are in great distress. We are at the end of of ourselves. We can't go any further here, God. Which, by the way, is a great place to be with God. The end of yourself. That's humility. But there's a, there's a, a statement in the middle of this section here that I think is really kind of the climax of this whole chapter, if you will. And they say, you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That's what they've been saying the whole time, right? That's what they've been spelling out for us. Oh God, give us your grace. Faithful God. We don't deserve it, but we need it. We need it every day, every moment. The grace of God. This is at the heart of everything we believe. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That every one of us is stiff-necked. And we're rebellious. And we want to do it our way and have it our way. And we don't want anybody telling us wrong or right. We can handle it on our own. God, we don't need you. That's the natural bent of the human heart. And because of this, we rebel and we disobey and we separate ourselves from a holy God and we deserve from it, just like the Israelites deserved, wrath and punishment and ultimately hell. And because of our rebellious hearts, we can't fix it. We can't get back to God. We can't defeat it on our own. We don't have control. It controls us. And so, thankfully, we have a God who's ready to forgive. And he was so ready and he was so gracious that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live a perfect and sinless life, the only human that's ever done it. And then to willingly, lovingly, graciously, 
go to the cross and give that life, that perfect, righteous life. He gave it for us. He laid down his life to pay for our sin, to be our substitute. And he took the wrath of God upon himself, and he was killed, and he was laid in a tomb. And then three days later, we just sang earlier, he rose back to life. He came back with hope for all of us. To show us that he was God and to offer us forgiveness of sin, to offer us grace, to offer us a chance to be reconciled from, with God and for our hearts to be changed to him. But you've got to turn. You've got to confess. You've got to humble yourself enough to say, like the Israelites say, Lord, I need you. I can't do this. Come and save me. And if you've never done that before, or maybe you have said it before, but you didn't really mean it, or it never really took, you need to do that today. Stop trying to do this on your own. Stop being stiff-necked and rebelling against the Lord. It only brings pain and heartbreak. Turn. Turn away from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and let him save you and deliver you and let his grace flood your life. Some of you have already done that. But right now you're still walking as a slave to sin. You've still got something in your life that has control over your heart. And you need his grace today just as much as the day you cried out for salvation. And you need to pray. You need to get on your knees. You need to humble yourself again and again and again and say, God, save me. Save me from this sin. Deliver me. Shower me with your grace once again. Where do you need to humbly petition God for grace today? What's that look like for you? Worship starts when I see the faithfulness of God and the wickedness of me. You can't, listen to me today, church, listen. You can't worship God until you humbly come to God with your sin and your need. Yes, you can come to church. Yes, you can sing some songs. You can even put money in the plate. You can even serve on a committee or a team. You can do all that stuff. But none of it counts for worship. None of it's worship until you confess your sin and your need to the Almighty God and cry out for him to save you. It starts with humility. Will you today, will you confess and cry out to the only one who can save you, to the only one who can heal you? Will you humble yourself enough to say, Lord, I need you. stand with me I'm going to pray and this is your chance this is your opportunity don't wait till you get home don't wait till tomorrow or small why are you waiting stop waiting the Lord is here right now I'm going to pray and you're going to pray and now's your chance to cry out to the Lord and confess whatever you need to confess and cry out, Lord, show me your grace. Lord, I need you. Come and meet me in the midst of this right here, right now. And he will do it. He will run to you. And if you need to be saved today, if you've never yet put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, do it right 
now. Cry out to the Lord and say, God, I need you. And your life will be changed forever. I'm going to pray. You're going to pray. And we're going to respond to the Lord. And I'm going to be here in the front. If you need to pray with someone, if you have questions, if you have concerns, if you just need to say it out loud to somebody else so you can get this off your heart, man, we're going to do that right now today. Confession is the start of humility and worship. Let's do it today. Let's do it together. Heavenly Father, we just bow before you. Lord, we're coming to you this morning. Just We know that we are broken people. We are stiff-necked, rebellious, disobedient. God, all these things in your word, Lord, it's just like a mirror pointing right back at us. We know that we are like sheep who have gone astray. Lord, we know that we have went our own way. We, we pursued our own sinful desires. We have We have been disobedient. We have rebelled. We have sinned against you. And yet, so, so thankful, so thankful, Lord, that you never leave us. You never forsake us. You are patient with us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that all should reach eternal life, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, we stand today as individuals and as a collective people just confessing to you, God, today that we need you. Lord, I need you to rescue me from my wickedness. Lord, work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, move in this moment right now. And draw us to humility, draw us to confession, draw us to worship. Dear God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for making a way. We pray all this in his wonderful name.